Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fantabulous episode of Monogamish Pod. It is I, your host, Jen. And so what I will be talking to you about today is absolutely nothing because I'll be talking to someone else about their experience in non-monogamy and their journey. So you may have heard me mention this person on a previous episode that I did with Wombly. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, so we have the infamous, see, I'm just like infamous, anti-mononormative here. I'm just going to call you what your Instagram handle is. And then, you know, Works you can tell people a bit about you. Like, tell them who you are, how you came to be on my radar, which is really just that I didn't stalk you, but I found you <laughs> and I claimed you like you were my own. So yeah, <laughs> welcome to the pod. How are you doing today? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here. This is my first podcast and I'm really glad to have this space to share my background and why I started my account and all that good stuff. I'm really just here to build community. So I think this is a really great place for me to start doing that. Oh, yes, absolutely. We're all about community here, you know, highlighting the black and brown folks in the world. Mm -hmm. Pew, pew, pew. So, yeah. yeah. So, first things first, Nayeli, mm -hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Just like vaguely broad strokes, and then I will just drill in a bit more later on. Yeah, so my first name is Nayeli. There's, you can pronounce that whatever way works for you. Um, and I just kind of go by my username, which is anti mononormative. I first started the account because I wanted to try and sort of shift the conversation a bit more political when it comes to non-monogamy. And that was something that I first started thinking about while I was an undergraduate at UCSD. And I was getting my bachelor's in social psychology with a minor in gender studies. And while I was learning about all these different critical fields, ethnic studies, gender studies, and a lot of really infamous pieces of radical feminist writing, um, I saw how a lot of that could apply to the non-monogamous community. And I just didn't see that many people talking about it online. Like, so what about um, the greater socio institutions going on that affect um, everyone in the community and outside of the community. And I also had a lot of issues with the way um, people in my field in psychology were going about doing research on the non-monogamous community. So I wanted to try and see if I can apply some feminist methods to that research. And that's what I plan to do in graduate school. Hopefully I'll be getting my PhD or starting that program sometime in the next few years, but I'm still currently on hold just because of COVID. Otherwise I would have probably been there this year um but yeah that's how i started out the account and i'm also just um personal background my pronouns are she they i'm okay with both she her and they them pronouns i am a reconnecting Purepecha indigenous person so my indigenous community that i'm reconnecting to is located in michoacan mexico so it's not native american but it is still an autonomous indigenous community not necessarily autonomous there's a few pueblos that are autonomous but um, it is an indigenous community. And also I am a queer woman. I kind of shifted between labels throughout the years, but right now I just go with queer. Yep. Queer makes sense. I, I understand the label shifting. When I started mm -hmm. the podcast, I was bisexual, now pansexual. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a journey for sure and, and how you identify and how that goes. So let's start at the very beginning, right? You did this research in college under your degree program. Does, is that what led you to realize that you were non-monogamous or is it something you kind of already had an inkling about before? Yeah, I definitely already was. Um, I wasn't like 
quite identifying as polyamorous just because I wasn't doing a lot of dating in college anyway. So I was like, you know, I feel like I probably will eventually be a part of this community. Like I could see myself aligning with um, this, uh, like the anti-mononormative resistance within me was already starting to build. And I already was like super interested in working with the non-monogamous community and doing research that would serve the community. However, once I started looking at the social psychological research that was actually being done related to non-monogamy, I just didn't really see that centering of community needs in that research. And I decided to start to go from there, pretty much. So when we talk about social psychology and the community work of non-monogamy, talk to me like I'm five, okay? I don't know anything. I'm completely removed from stuff. So what do you really mean when you're talking about the community work of polyamory and non-monogamy? Okay, so let me just try and paint a picture of what social psychology research on non-monogamy looks like right now, or at least the more prominent papers that have come out in the past like 10 years or so. Um, it's been mostly a lot of white psychologists, a lot of white women doing research with other white non-monogamous people who are openly non-monogamous and, you know, have don't experience a lot of the same issues that people who aren't don't have access to, you know, joining academic research. Um, it's just it feels to me like it is the most privileged group of people within the non-monogamous community who are really highlighted in that work and their needs are being centered through that work. But I don't think it is as critical of all the different kinds of people within the non-monogamous community and people who aren't necessarily non-monogamous but are still affected by the larger social institution of mononormativity. I, I don't see that being reflected in it. And that has a lot to do with just the approach that researchers are taking. And I see it kind of veering towards this, a similar approach to same gender marriage equality, where the main goal is kind of seen as like marriage equality and that's it. But there's a huge issue with just wanting marriage equality and centering that like on in so many ways. Like also I saw somebody commented on one of my videos on TikTok yesterday that marriage equality only benefits able-bodied people. And I was like, that's a good point too. Like that's that should also be part of this conversation. They should also be listening to other people's pers perspectives when it comes to centering um, certain people with this research. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's good. We're going to have a new PhD person on our hand. She's going to take care of all of that. Yeah, I hope yeah. so. I hope I can be. That's really what my goal is to be. I want to be like one of those people in academia who is on our side, you know, like I'm, I'm working my way up and I'm, I'm almost there. Okay, good, good. See, I'm glad. So I just wanted to lay that kind of foundational conversation because like I said, I don't know nothing. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to learn as well. You know, we're just trying to figure yeah. things out. So you also said that you're a reconnecting indigenous person. Mm -hmm. So we spoke with Wombly about, you know, their journey into reconnecting as well, which is being a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so why don't you talk to me a little bit about your indigenous community and their ideas on non-monogamy and polyamory? Ooh, so I think um, I'm going to try not to talk too much about the specific cultural practices of my community just because they're, um, I feel like a lot of people just like to 
gain access to that kind of knowledge when yeah. it's not necessarily the point of the conversation sometimes but I can still talk a little bit about how that looks like today um, even though like historically speaking it is a little bit more difficult to access um, the history of indigenous communities in Mexico compared to the U.S. just because there currently is still a lot of barriers when it comes to us gathering knowledge and academic institutions are very different over there compared to here. So here I've seen a lot of people fortunately being able to document the history of their communities through U.S. academic institutions over there. There is like individual academic institutions within indigenous communities, but it's still just there's a lot of different stigmas and homophobia and all these other issues that prevent people from doing work on gender and sexuality specifically. So there isn't that much knowledge that I can find um, just like online looking at academic articles from those communities about gender and sexuality, but just within my experience of talking to other members of the Budapest community, other queer people in the community that I've met online, we seem to have the understanding right now that we might have been um, one of the cultures who did have some form of non-monogamy in the past. Like I've seen it here and there, but for the most part, everyone now is very assimilated into mononormativity. So it's currently not an accepted thing anyway, but I still think it's important to talk about how even if monogamy was already existing in our community, monogamy without capitalism looked very different and without colonialism looked very different. So even if we did have, um, like I see this argument that like, oh, but a lot of indigenous communities already had monogamy. So how can you be resisting against colonialism through non-monogamy necessarily, which is both like a valid critique, but also like we have to contextualize what monogamy looked like without settler colonialism and capitalism. That was still very drastically different from how it looks today. Yeah, absolutely. That that context is definitely missing for a lot of people. It's like, okay, they may have been monogamous, but why people didn't come and fuck their shit up? <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of, I'm sorry, like I'm just gonna say yeah. that. I'm just gonna fuck the shit up yet. So, how monogamy was practiced then would be very different from what it looks mm -hmm. like now under capitalist structures. And we also know about the business of weddings and marriage mm -hmm. and how monogamy plays out and toxic monogamy and current society and ooh, so many things. But I think a good, or like not like a good, but a possible example of what people would have experienced in monogamous relationships before meant that yes you may have been married to someone you may have had kids with them whatever marriage looked mm -hmm. like at that time but it didn't completely isolate you from your community which i think mm -hmm. is what monogamy does a lot nowadays there's mm -hmm. that kind of you know yeah my husband is my best friend my lover my everything i mm -hmm. can only turn to my husband for guidance there is nothing else that anyone else can do for me but my man <laughs> Yeah. And that we all know that that's not really healthy. That's not how that works. Yeah, it's just so many expectations put onto one person. And yeah, I think that's one thing that indigenous communities did really well just across the board, like dividing roles into different people and not putting the same role onto and expectations onto the same person. There was less of this expectation for like your significant other partner, spouse to fulfill all of these different roles, especially when it comes to how you form a loving connection. And I think nowadays, like modern monogamy is about finding someone who is both a, um, well, not both, but like has all three, like both domestic partnership, 
romantic attraction and sexual attraction, but we have no idea if marriage in Indigenous communities was actually, like, one spouse had all those three things. Like, we have no idea if people who had kids with each other were actually lovers. We have no idea if they had other sexual partners outside of the marriage. And that's also one of the things that colonizers weren't really interested in documenting. So that's a huge issue now where we, the most that we can get for the most part about that history when it comes to gender and sexuality is just talking to other community members, trying to listen to our elders and see what they remember and what they have to share. But in general, it was one of those things that history has erased from our communities. Colonialism has erased from our communities. Yep, absolutely. I mean, there are some religions that still practice and like I said, some people who are lucky enough to be able to have retentions of that culture, but there are a lot of communities that will never truly know what mm-hmm. it was like. And I think that's probably the hardest part to reckon with. <laughs> I mean, of course, the whole, you know, other negative side effects of colonialism, those are horrible too. But I think in trying to reconnect, that must be a very difficult thing to have to deal with. Yeah, I think I've been learning a lot just from listening to Dr. Kim Talbear, who is like my currently all-time favorite academic. (laughs) She is like the indigenous queen of critical polyamory in the academic world. Um, I believe she's a professor in at a Canadian university, and she is she has like a book coming out too on this. So I'm really excited for that. Hopefully, it comes out in the next year. But basically, she's going to be connecting um, a lot of these ideas about tribal belonging and indigeneity, and how capitalism, settler colonialism have shaped our tribal structures she's going to be connecting that to the structure of mononormativity so that's going to be super interesting i'm really excited to see how that works but one of the things that i've learned from listening to dr kim talbert is that even if colonialism has removed a lot of the more um easily understandable information about how our communities used to look like we can still see like little traces of some of the values that might have been reflected in our relationships between our ancestors. So um, sometimes you can look at the language and see just how certain names and what people used to call each other, just seeing like the structure of the language reveals a lot about relationships between people. And that's just one of the ways in which um, people can try and apply some of the ethics that our ancestors in our communities might've had and just trying to replicate that in not the exact same way, but in its in a new way in communities today, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Uh, a question about the names for people. I know I don't want you to tell me anyone's particular name, but can I have an idea of what kind of name would denote a certain relationship with someone? I know in Iceland, for example, the girl's last name is, you know, the father's first name and daughter. So mm-hmm. for example, if your father's name is Doug, it'd be Doug's daughter, whatever that is in Icelandic, as the child's last name. And if it's a son, I think it's the same thing as well. Is it something similar to that? Yeah, I have a couple of examples that can um, I can share. They're not exactly like the one you just mentioned, but I remember I once attended a virtual um, discussion of some Budapicha woman who were discussing the history of patriarchy in the Budapja community and how a lot of the words for women in our communities come from like 
a very um, derogatory place. Like they took words that have really harmful meanings and that's where the word for like wife and woman um, came from. I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was what I remember from the discussion. I just don't want to like, you know, speak for other members of the community. Like they know more than I do, but that's yeah. what I, that was my takeaway. Um, and also I've seen another, I had another example. What was it? It was, oh yeah, there's just a lot of... Um, words that didn't exist prior to colonization that we have introduced into our, our communities. One of them that I thought was really interesting is the word for family, because, um, you know, under colonialism and this nuclearization of the family, where, you know, the structure of the family became um, very different compared to how it was in indigenous communities previously, in Purepecha, there was no word for family necessarily because the whole pueblo was your family. Like the whole town was your family. Like weddings yeah. are with like hundreds of people. And so there was no exact word for family just because we didn't see like just your biological immediate family as your only um, family, if that makes sense. So that's just one of the ways in which um, yeah. language reveals how our relationships used to look like. Oh yeah, that's that's what we call now the modern day found family, right? Yeah, <laughs> those, those are the people. Yeah, I guess kind of what that would look like. Okay, thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate it. Like I said, I know I'm not trying to find out the details of a culture that is not mm. mine. I'd share that with other people because that's not appropriate. I don't think. But thank you. I appreciate that. So you have found your way into polyamory. You're there. Uh, what? does your love style currently look like? Like, What love style are you drawn to? What does that look like? I know people are like, oh, I only want kitchen table. I only want parallel. Those are just some examples. What does that look like or feel like for you right now? I think if I did have partners right now, I would be a solo polyamorous person. I like having my space and I don't really um, see myself wanting a primary partner or just someone who I live with and I don't see myself practicing that kind of hierarchical um, structure even though you know I'm still new to like a lot of these more practical terms when it comes to describing polyamorous relationships I've been very much um, talking about non-monogamy from a more political perspective and trying not to talk about like my personal life when it comes to the content that I make, which it's not that I don't want to, it's just that I feel like I don't have that much to say given that I don't have a lot of experience compared to a lot of other people in the polyamorous community. Like I tend to speak from what I know, which is just examining social structures around me and also talking about my relationship with myself. I think that's like one of the more um, important things that has developed in my polyamorous journey. Like the highlight is not my relationship with other partners that I've had, it's been the development of my relationship with myself and how I have started reconnecting to my indigenous community and grown into my queerness and how I've just developed this anti-colonial and anti-capitalist resistance within my expectations and desires for dating. Oh yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a single polyamorous person while also being solo. I just want to put that out there, guys. Single polyamorous mm -hmm. people do exist. It's no one is just out here, here fucking and dating everyone all the time. Like that's not feasible. Like when you're monogamous, you're allowed to be single, right? Like it's the same mm -hmm. for polyamorous people. Just want to put that out there. So it's interesting. Like you, you currently don't have a partner, which is very different from most people that I usually mm -hmm. talk to on the pod. Not there's anything wrong with that, because trust me. 
I mean, right now I'm not quite single, but I was single for a time before this. Okay. It counts. Um, and there was a lot of feelings that I had around that and I had to like Mm -hmm. make peace with that. I was kind of like, Oh, but like, am I really poly if I'm not like trying to figure something out? But Mm -hmm. that's, that's not how that works. So thank you for admitting that and being open to that (laughs) because a lot of people just be like, oh, well, you know, there's some people that I'm talking to, but, you know, it's nothing serious or they try to play it off. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not like completely single, but I could be if the, if the mood switches. So is this a conscious decision that you've made right now since you're on this journey of reconnecting to stay single or are you open to partners at this point in time? I think I am open to partners. The issue right now has been just my location and my environment. I feel like right now I'm living in a city where I'm not really interested in building any long-term relationships that I know I might be moving across the country to start my PhD program sometime in the next one or two years, probably next year if everything works out. So I'm just really right now trying to develop um, my friendships and my family relationships without focusing too much on finding a partner like I I am interested in finding um partners in my area but it hasn't really been um on my radar as much yeah it's I mean also we're in a pandemic so yeah I feel feel like trying to trying to date for a lot of people was not a priority in a pandemic it was more Mm -hmm. like how how can we survive this how can we get through everything that we have to do so I also understand that completely I guess my next question for you now would be about your queer expression right so have you always known or is this other a newer understanding of yourself okay so i have um a my my shift across um labels that i've been using well let me go over the order first so i think when i was in high school that was when i first realized like okay i am definitely not straight i definitely am attracted to people who don't just identify as men um and i started identifying as pansexual at first and then over time i once i got to college i just kind of started gravitating more towards bisexual and then now that i've already tried um dating people and mostly men, I, I eventually ended up getting to the point of, I think TikTok played a huge role in this, actually. Lesbian TikTok really changed me a lot. Um, I started seeing people talking a lot about compulsory heterosexuality and how a lot of us like will date men without necessarily being attracted to them. And I think that definitely hit the spot for me a little bit. I was like, wait, wait, did I actually, was I actually romantically interested in all of these men that I tried dating in college or was I just doing that out of compulsory heterosexuality? And that has, that question has been haunting me for like the past, I don't know, two years now. Like, I feel like I have this cycle now where like every summer I'm like, you guys, I think I'm a lesbian. And then they're like, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then I end up dating a guy or trying to date a guy for a little bit. And then I come out of that with the same conclusion where I'm like, yeah, no, I just, I don't think so. (laughs) Like, it's just an ongoing cycle. Um, But I think one of the things that I've learned though is just how to start thinking critically about my different types of attraction to people and trying to dissect the whole concept of romance because I feel like we don't do enough of that like I saw your video the other day of like what is what is romantic attraction what does romance really mean though I feel like it's just kind of a given and yeah I definitely have struggled with that as well because I realized that even though I might be physically attracted to a lot of the men around me I struggle to 
find men whose idea of romance matches mine when it comes to what I want out of a relationship. And I lose interest really quickly because of that, because I'm like, oh, wait, you don't have this fantasy in your head compared to um, what a lot of me and other um, femmes grew up in, in our head. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, one of, that's what my queer journey has looked like so far. Right now, I just identify as queer, but I'm really um, alternating between like those those labels and learning more about what the lesbian community thinks about how to use that label oh yes compulsory heterosexuality let's talk about that for a hot minute because mm -hmm. uh at, we said that lit me for six that that really turned my head upside down when i thought about that and then the whole romantic love question has been coming up a lot for me recently like i said i stemmed from a conversation I had with an aromantic person mm -hmm. and it was really just me thinking like but what even is romantic love like what does that look like is it the whole is it everything that comes with other love plus sex like what what are we talking about mm -hmm. here I mean except for family love I'm not trying to include that into my mm -hmm. romantic love that seems a little bit off based on what we've been taught romances but you know what I'm saying is like mm -hmm. I'm just trying to have that like that is a whole thing and yeah. then especially for femme presenting people compulsory heterosexuality is so real I, men are not even that great <laughs> i'm like i want to say that i have had like oh yeah there's one man in my life who i was a great potential partner but i don't i honestly don't like i just have not experienced that i i really I, it's great if somebody else has experienced that and i do see people around me who have great um partners who are men i just it has not happened for me um but yeah, I don't know if it's just me. I don't know if it's somehow like the the way patriarchy shapes men um, just through the experience of being gendered ends up being a problem for me just because I tend to not have the capacity or interest in investing the kind of emotional labor that it takes to help men undo their internalized misogyny. So that's where it comes from for me, really, where um, I just I see like a lot of my potential partners who are men and I'm like, yeah, I feel like you if we if I worked on it, if we worked on it, um, you know, maybe like you could undo some of the internalized misogyny that would be a problem in the relationship. But I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I really want to be there for that or if I should just, you know, be from afar wish you luck on that it's it's a constant struggle i mean like you're also like you're not a teacher you're not a you're not their therapist mm -hmm. you're supposed to be their partner it's like that shit you figure out by yourself and yeah. I, I i don't i don't want a piece of a person i want a whole person whatever that whole looks like that i want i want a whole person i don't want to be like oh this one's a work in progress maybe mm -hmm. if i work on it and that's something that a lot of than people struggle with being taught like oh no no you just have to get the work in progress one and you work on it and then hopefully at the end of it that one will be yours and they won't leave you because yeah. they're now working they're not a work in progress anymore they're now actualized for someone else i think a lot of people have those stories where it's like listen i was with this guy and you know we were, i taught him how to wash his underwear how to change his sheets <laughs> yeah. how to do his laundry helped him get a good job and then this motherfucker left me <laughs> for someone else yeah because yeah you did all the stuff you, you taught him you were his teacher mm -hmm. you were his therapist and now <laughs> he wants to be a man with someone who is not those things you're so right. Yeah. Um, I think TikTok has also really opened my eyes to that, like how it's just this universal phenomenon right now. And just there's like a dating crisis when it comes to finding male partners as well. Um, 
And it's just like, I, I finally understand it now just because of the background I have in psychology. And I actually understand like how um, dating apps and attachment styles and just like limited resources when it comes to finding like um, a man really is like how that all works. And there is reasons for it. Like there actually is, especially like people my age, like Gen Z who live in big cities, there is more, um, there's not enough of like the men that people tend to desire to go around really. Like it's actually a problem. So um, under monogamy, it's not, it's gonna be, it's gonna get real ugly in the next few years if people keep wanting to like have one man for themselves, like who's gonna treat them decently? Like, I don't know how else to tell them, but I'm like, dude, I've looked at the research. Um, it's, it's not good. It's not looking good. Like you're gonna have to either start dating women or become non-monogamous and start sharing these good men if you want a chance at building beautiful relationships and families with people. But monogamy is not gonna work out. Like this, this mononormative culture of like only like this heteronormative mononormative culture is not going to be sustainable for our generation um so yeah let's see how that plays out it absolutely isn't because it's i mean it's hitting millennials in a weird way right now we're like mm, i don't know should we try it i don't know like let's do it right and <laughs> it's 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 definitely something that a lot of people are realizing like wait you mean if i have two boyfriends that means that we can buy a house like the three of us can buy a house. Like, <laughs> yeah, we can do things, and I think that's also just like a part of it too. Like the capitalist structure of it. Mm -hmm. it it's monogamy made sense financially in like the fifties, yeah. the sixties, the seventies. Things were much cheaper then, mm -hmm. right? People were still getting paid five dollars to do like jobs, mm -hmm. and like that was a lot of money being taken home. But now, when the cost of a house is five hundred thousand dollars. And the house is old and looks like crap. I mean, I can't afford that. Can you afford that by yourself? Oh, no, baby. We gonna go all in. It's gonna be a team effort. Let's go. Let's do the damn thing. Yep. Yeah. And that also ties into, like, the whole history of nation building from, like, the colonial context in North America. Um, like, I've recently been reading more into, like, how our family structures and how capitalism has made us build housing to fit those family structures is like so bad for the environment and also just the population is out of control like only in ever since um mononormativity has been developing into what it is now with modern monogamy so for the past like 200 years that's when the population has really began to skyrocket and that has everything to do with the way in which um colonial settler colonial nation states wanted specifically white people to have more children to colonize the land and that's that's also one of the things that i've been learning from dr kim talbert just everything the way that it is now where like there's this pressure especially from certain states like texas right now um there's this pressure for women to just have as many children as possible so that we continue to only benefit the one percent and continue this structure of capitalism and ruining the planet um, but that has like everything to do with mononormativity and how people are comfortable building families like we really need to shift how we want to build families and continue the next generations if we want to save the planet and not um you know succumb to capitalism if that makes sense um it's they're they're connected the environment and 
mononormativity are connected is what I'm trying to say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So now I got to ask you, what's your ideal family structure? I mean, we're mm-hmm. just, you know, putting that out there. My ideal family structure this. involves stuff. So what's your ideal family structure? Yeah. So honestly, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think me reconnecting to my indigenous community has also changed a lot um, how I view like my ideal family structure in the future. So I think when I was growing up, I was the kind of person who was like, yeah, I don't really want to have biological kids. Like, I think if I ever do start a family, I'm going to want to adopt. And I always saw myself having like one partner who I would adopt those children with. Um and now it's it's changed a lot just because I have encountered, you know, this discourse of like a colonial eco-friendly ways to start building families. And um, I think specifically because I'm indigenous, there's also like this issue of like our communities um, not having the same numbers as other communities. And there is um, a need for more indigenous children. And that isn't necessarily... Um, tied to biology, though, I feel like right now there's like, yes, it does make more practical sense to help indigenous people have more kids and get their numbers back up because of the ongoing genocide. However, there's also um, it doesn't have to be through biological kin making. It could be non-biological kin making. So a, a great book to recommend on this topic is called Making Kin, Not Population. And Dr. Kim Talbert has um one she has she wrote one of the chapters in that book but that book is really life-changing for me it's only like five chapters but it's written by um feminist writers who just have a lot to say on that topic and how we need to start approaching making families but um for me personally now i think if i ever find myself in a situation where I am one financially able to have children and I have the right people around me to help me raise a child I will consider having a biological child but I'm also not um I don't see why unless if I I don't know I have like this biological inclination at the time to have a child I'll, I'll think about it but um I I'm still really just thinking about how we can make non-biological kin and I also don't necessarily want my romantic partner to be my co-parent and I don't necessarily want only one co-parent so I think my ideal family structure really is just me and some of my friends I don't know how many but probably more than two (laughs) um raising like one child and however many we we see fit but I I really just want to see this like more communal child raising community (laughs) starting to become more normalized because especially under capitalism like we can't afford my generation cannot afford to have our own children we can't afford to raise them just in you know this mononormative structure and we can't afford to grow old without children so like what are we supposed to do like we have no other choice but to just band together and be like okay so me and my top five homies we're gonna have one child um and that kid's gonna take care of all of us when we're old and that kid is gonna be amazing because we all can pitch in to have the resources for it and yeah like there's just this whole you know systemically like if a kid doesn't have the right um resources financially you know that's usually the way you provide those resources that plays a huge role in how they turn out when they're older in, in adulthood so yeah like i think um that's probably going to be my approach someday. Like if I have the right friends who are interested in building a family with me, we will go from there. But it doesn't have to be anything like um, what my family's family structures look like. I'm not interested in preserving 
anything related to mononormativity when it comes to building a family in the future. Oh, yeah, understand that. I'm absolutely on board with that. Uh, I mean, my best friend and I, we definitely have a plan. I mean, she's engaged or whatever, and her fiance has a kid. So like, she's like a stepmom and stuff already, even though they're not like officially married. But we're going to grow old together. So he has to figure that out. Like, <laughs> because I mean, literally, the plan is we are going to grow old together. We have kind of decided like, okay, I guess we can get like a duplex or something. Like, you and I can be on one side and he can be on the other side. <laughs> that was her idea. And I was like, so you're going to have your husband just live in it. She's like, I don't need him like that. Like, I mean, we're good. So, I mean, also separate bedrooms is a huge part of my lifestyle anyway. My romantic situation, I don't want to sh- have to feel obligated to share a bed with anyone, even if we're that, next to AKA living in the yeah, same house. Same. So, it's like, mm, let's... I used to think my aunt was still weird. I have an aunt. She and her husband have like separate bedrooms. And when growing up, I thought it was so weird because it wasn't this Disney ideal of how we're taught marriage is supposed to be like, right? We're taught it's supposed mm-hmm. to be same bedroom, doing the whole thing. Nah. As, as I got older, I was like, this bitch had it right. Mm, I was I was young and stupid. Now <laughs> I see the light. I see the light. She knows better. <laughs> so it, it's a whole thing. I mean, that that's my future. My future does involve my friends turned family or my found family yeah. and mm-hmm. if we have kids we have kids if we don't we gonna take care of each other the way that mm-hmm. we always are meant to it it doesn't mean that we're yeah. not gonna have children in our lives to mm-hmm. help to foster and and mentor in whatever ways that needs to happen but it doesn't mean that i have to be the one pushing out babies to make me feel valid in some way mm-hmm. as a mother because that's never been my thing like all of my closest friends, my mom is like, oh, how are my how are my sons and daughters doing? She has never, ever, you know, made them feel like they are not a part of the family because they are. Once you are that close to us, you are in the family. This is it. It's your uncle. It's your aunt. It's your brother, your sister in whatever way, except for when she calls the dog my brother. That's a little weird. But, <laughs> you know, just like... Things like that. Like she's always been such a welcoming presence to all the people who are closest to me in my life. And I want to be able to do that for other kids. You never have to wonder like, oh, can I go over? No, you need something. I got you. That's kind Mm -hmm. of my goal in being a mother type figure or the cool aunt, whichever kind of the line that falls on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also, um, I think my relationship with my family, which has been through its ups and downs, I think right now it's kind of headed um, up, but I definitely have learned a lot just from feeling uncomfortable with my own family dynamics and how I was not a huge fan of the whole, um, my parents feeling entitled to me, like, wanting to spend time with them and liking them. Like, it's just, like, I just felt like I, they should have, you know, not seeing me as like, oh, you are my child and I own you financially and you have to love me and spend time with me. Um, Even though they weren't like super strict on enforcing that, they have struggled to just find ways to connect with me on like a genuine level, the way I connect with my friends and my peers. And they are, we're still working on that. We're like, they're still kind of getting to know me. I think like, even though I'm an only child, like we were not close at all. We're still like working on that. Um, But yeah, like I definitely, if I ever have a child, I 
don't want to treat them like they are my property. And that has a lot to do with um, the same same thing with mononormativity. Like if I ever have a partner, I don't want to treat them like they're my property. And that does stem from, you know, the history of mononormativity where like historically the head of household, which was always man, had women and children as his physical property. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to disrupt that capitalist idea of, you know, being entitled to people in that way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I will tell you the story. It, my mom probably feels some type of way about it, but I don't care because it's important. So there was a point in time where we were not getting along. I mean, we were not always cool. And I think probably like between like 12 and 14, it was really bad. So I wrote her a letter and I was like, you know, I love you because you're my mother, but I don't like you as a person. Here are all these reasons why. And that. she, of course, was <laughs> devastated because of, you know, her own personal feelings about that. And we had to have a talk about it. And I was like, listen, these are all the things you do that fuck with me. Like, this is hurtful. This is this. This is that. And you cannot do these things just because I am your child. And once we got past that hurdle of, like, her understanding that, yes, you may have made me, but I am still an autonomous human. And the things that you say and do will affect me in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Like, once we got through that part, it's been pretty much smooth sailing ever since because she understands that I'm a human being with my own thoughts and feelings. And I have to also make peace with her about that. Cause that this also idea that we have of putting parents on pedestals, right? Like they're not real human beings. They're, they're our parents, you know, mm -hmm. and years of therapy has also helped me realize that sometimes your parents can't love you the way you need to be loved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can't engage with you the way you need to be engaged with. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide, is this a relationship that I want to maintain with limits or is a relationship I don't want at all? And having to go through that, like with a lot of family members and even like close friends, because we have all these thoughts about breakups being the end of the world. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes you can just uncouple from people and it's not a crisis. You just have to make peace with relationship being what it is, knowing it's not what you want it to be and move on. And I made that peace with some other relatives in my family. I was like, yeah. No, this is not going to be a thing. We're just not going to talk. And that's fine for me. I, you are entitled to your feelings. This is a boundary. You cannot cross mm -hmm. this. Because all you do is hurt me. So we are not going to do that. But thank you for being a part of my life and helping in what ways you could at the time. I mm -hmm. appreciate those things that you have done for me. And Healing intergenerational trauma. Yeah, I love yeah. that. <laughs> let's do it. Like, Setting do boundaries it. is so new for me still. Like just like even that is like such a journey just to be able to set a boundary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, um, I, I have great boundaries with family, with romantic partners, though. Sometimes you still fall into that hole. But like, I just want you to like me. So I'm going to do the thing I don't really want to do because you like the thing that I don't really want to do. And, you know, it's it's weird sometimes, but most of that has mm -hmm. to do with access, right? Because I'm used to people demanding a certain level of access from me, family members, friends, whatever. There are times where I'm not assertive enough to be like, I cannot handle this because your girl's in the middle of a depressive episode. I'm about to have a breakdown. This is not going to work for me. And I force myself to do the thing because they're my romantic partner and I should want to spend time with them instead of spend time in bed. I mean, I guess, but it, it it's it's a work in progress. It's it's a mm -hmm. constant evolution. I think of reintroducing yourself to yourself, and mm -hmm. do these boundaries still work? They're not working. Okay, how do we fix this? So yeah, that's how I am fighting the man 
the man is myself. Yeah, developing your relationship with yourself. That's also like um, been what I've been doing, honestly, in my polyamorous journey. I think um, since you mentioned like the the struggle to set boundaries with romantic partners for me, um, it has been a struggle to know when I shouldn't pursue trying to date someone just because I still have never been in a long-term committed relationship, um, a romantic one. And that desire that I've had for my whole life has made it really difficult to turn people away sometimes. And I try and explore and entertain something that I know I have no business doing anyway, but just for the heck of it, I end up doing it really. And sometimes that hurts me on the way out, but I, I still gain a lot from the experience, but it's still been a struggle to know when it's worth pursuing and when it's not. I would love to tell you that you figure it out as you get older. It, I mean, I guess technically you figure it out more times than you don't when you get older, if you're learning, I'll put it that way. So you have a TikTok. It's great. If you guys are not following anti-modernity on TikTok, you should be. You have a TikTok. You have an Instagram page. Talk to me about some of the stuff that you put on that page. And of course, you don't really talk much about your personal life, but anti-mononormative, that's, that's a whole brand. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Yeah, so I first got that, um, that anti-inspiration when I started hearing academics like Dr. Kim Talbert and just listening to people talk about mononormativity and as a social institution, like monogamy from um, this sociological perspective as opposed to monogamous relationships themselves, I really enjoyed um, seeing that shift and just seeing people talk about it as it's related to capitalism and settler colonialism. So I, I noticed like a lot of these other content creators that we all know um, who talk a lot about polyamory and have a lot of followers, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I don't have any partners right now. So I feel less of a need to post about my my personal journey with polyamory and my experiences um, compared to a lot of other people, just because I don't have those, like that's not part of my my content um, pool at all. Like I, I have zero interest in doing that right now. Um, but I noticed in general though, there was a lack of people discussing non-monogamy from like this outside of institutional perspective. So I started learning a lot about the whole structure of mononormativity in college and how problematic it is and how we really need to be resisting against that, even if you're not necessarily non-monogamous. And that's also a huge thing that I wanted to introduce to these virtual spaces, a space where people who also um, aren't necessarily non-monogamous, like for other monogamous people to learn about mononormativity and how settler colonialism and capitalism has shaped their relationships and how a lot of these ideas that are common in toxic monogamy culture are bad. And I just wanted um, this word that I guess convey this idea that people need to be educating themselves about mononormativity and resisting against that institution, regardless of how you participate in relationships. Everyone is affected by mononormativity, not just non-monogamous people. Monogamous people have just as much responsibility to undoing mononormativity in their own relationships if they want to try and not harm each other and not harm the people that they love. So that was a huge motivator for me to start making content and also where I got the inspiration for my name. Um, I think anti-mononormative just perfectly captures this, this kind of resistance that I want people to start, um, start learning about and start developing for themselves. Yeah, of course, like I said, you post some things that have me thinking like, wait a minute, I have never thought about that. 
that that's interesting <laughs> because it's so entrenched just like patriarchy it's so entrenched in our everyday lives like mm-hmm. you don't even realize you're in the system sometimes mm-hmm. until someone points something out you're like shit i thought i was past that damn it i'm still involved <laughs> still involved how do yeah. how do we change this how do we change these structures but yeah i mean that's a great thing it i think working on an individual level is definitely a start to getting things done on a macro level right mm-hmm. so what is one thing that you definitely want people you know monogamous non-monogamous whoever's listening to start thinking about as it relates to anti-mononormativity i want them to think about the specifically with monogamous people i think non-monogamous people like kind of know this but you know it doesn't really apply to you as much if you're not engaging with monogamy but um i really want to reach out to any monogamous people that come across um this this podcast my my page and just encourage you to think critically about the whole history of monogamy as it relates to settler colonialism and capitalism. Because I know a lot of, most of my friends are in monogamous relationships and identify as monogamous. And even though they are in like relatively healthy relationships and I adore them, um, they have learned so much just from listening to me talk about the history of mononormativity. Like they've told me like, hey, Nayeli, like I have at first, like when you started telling me about all this stuff, I was a little bit like uncomfortable just because I felt like it was threatening um, my relationship and I was like kind of afraid to hear that like you know the history of monogamy is bad because I, I'm kind of benefiting from it right now um, but as they started listening to me they started realizing that it's not really from a place of attacking monogamy it's about attacking and resisting against colonialism and capitalism I know plenty of monogamous people who are um, very anti-capitalist. However, they don't see the connections from how capitalism affects their everyday relationships with their partners. And that's a huge one that I really want people to think about. Like, I want you to think about um, those Valentine's Day candies that are like, be mine. And they say all these really like possessive um, kind of like turning human into property kind of things, if you think about it. Um, but just think about the whole history of how monogamy under settler colonialism and capitalist nation building here in North America was really just about commodifying human beings and turning women and children into private property. And even though over time, modern monogamy has developed in ways so that now you can, I guess the same rules kind of apply to men, obviously patriarchy still affects that, but you know, there's still this inherent, um, theme of property and ownership that stems from capitalism that is reflected in our relationships. And I just really want every anti-capitalist out there to think about how capitalism is reflected in your relationship and how you can try and combat that. I mean, does this involve tax breaks too? Because you get tax breaks for being married, for having kids, for all this other stuff. I don't get any of that. I feel like I need it more than they do. That's a whole other thing, just the history of state-sanctioned marriage and how it also, it was about tying people's personal lives to their socioeconomic benefits. Like, I, I'm i just not a fan of the whole structure. Like, I really think we should just abolish state-sanctioned marriage. Um, but that's another conversation that I don't see that many people talking about within the non-monogamous community. Like, do we really want marriage equality and to further extend these benefits to yet another privileged group of people among a bunch of other people who won't receive those benefits or do we are we going for an abolitionist approach i don't know abolish marriage 2021 i don't know we'll see like um, we'll see how those conversations go but yeah i do want to see more people talking about that 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I'm already thinking about it. I'm trying to figure out ways to enact some of the things you talked about in this conversation, also on your page, like in my real life. Because again, like you said, you don't realize how these things benefit you or disenfranchise you until you've actually thought about the thing. You're like, shit. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think um, <laughs> my biggest um, content creation so far has been like the ethical non-monogamy terminology posts that I have on my Instagram. And yeah, so thank you for the feedback on that. Like, I'm really glad to see that um, a lot of people have been thinking about that term and how we use it in more from a more critical perspective. And I personally don't really like using it just as, as I've mentioned in that post, like I don't really like how calling non-monogamy, just general non-monogamous practices, consensual or ethical. I, I feel like the people who coined that term or both those terms were um, coming from a very colonized mindset and were probably white, honestly. Um, they were probably like white researchers who didn't know about how Black and Indigenous people in the U.S. have been like disproportionately and very violently affected by the whole institution of mononormativity and being, you know, forced to um, separate from your ancestral forms of relating through colonialism. And I, I feel like those terms just aren't centering the least privileged people um, within the non-monogamous community and outside of it. Like I just feel like those terms don't set us up to try and acknowledge that history and. Um, abolish mononormativity going forward. Yeah, because I mean, uh, part of what it's tied up into now is like, oh, well, you know, it's only ethical if everyone consents, you know, or it's only consensual if like we all agree that we're doing the thing. I'm like, okay, but this also is excluding the people who aren't able to have those conversations. Yeah, that's, a <laughs> that's the thing, right? Yeah, like mon non-monogamy isn't accessible to everyone under mononormativity. Like there's so many people who have been in like long-term marriages and are already too invested in their structure and have children and finances like that prevent them from being able to openly explore non-monogamy and i feel like this idea that like the only kind like um that breaking a monogamous contract or cheating is like always 100 percent wrong i really think we should just also dismantle um the concept of cheating as well because at the end of the day like even though like it is important to acknowledge that whenever people cheat there is a lot of harm there that is done there is going to be harm that is created i don't think we should always be putting the blame on the people or the person engaging in that act and also like we need to contextualize it within the larger context of mononormativity and how not everyone has access to being able to ethically or consent to non-monogamy. Um, like sometimes that's the only way people are able to resist against mononormativity. And we can't just blame people for the, the long-term effects of colonialism, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I mean, for me, cheating is not the end of a relationship. If that means something is going on that we need to talk about, mm -hmm. right? That's something that we need to figure out, whether it's something that you are not being fulfilled with in our partnership for whatever reason or something that you need to fulfill for yourself <laughs> you know internally i mean there there's always a reason that people do things right people don't just do things in a vacuum because we don't exist in a vacuum so i cheating for me is never the end of a relationship it's the start of a conversation and it also for that. me depends on did you tell me that you cheated or did you hide this from me mm. 
because for me the hiding of the thing is way more egregious than you actually mm -hmm. doing the thing so but again that's just for my personal relationships right i know for some people it's the the doing of the thing that's more detrimental than anything else and them finding out after the fact they're kind of like well i wish you kept it from me forever kind of kind of but again that's also about possession and ownership etc mm -hmm. so yeah. there, there there's levels to it right i think that was something that made me kind of weird amongst my friends from the very beginning and i was like i mean yeah he's hooking up with other people like that's fine and this is before i knew that it was you know acceptable or unacceptable or whatever those things were mm -hmm. i was like yeah i mean he thinks he's keeping it from me but i already know and they're like oh, you're still with him yeah because i already know even if he thinks he's being sneaky I, i'm not stupid so <laughs> you know like this is clearly there is some consent on my part right because i have decided to stay with someone who believes they are being sneakily doing the thing and obviously this person was not good for romantic connection at that time based on those things but that wasn't the end of the world to me it was just like an oh okay that's happening yeah. i mean everyone knows you're doing the thing that's happening and i think a lot of it's also tied up in how other people are going to view you right it's not about how you feel about the situation sometimes it's about how other people are going to think of you if they know you're in the situation so if we yeah. take it super white you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton, not saying they're the greatest people, but a lot of people blamed Hillary for what happened. <laughs> a lot of people blamed Monica Lewinsky for what happened. And I'm like, I'm just thinking of that sound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, how does that make sense? And someone actually said it when Hillary was running for president. They were like, well, she couldn't even keep her husband. How is she going to run a country? And I was like, it's like, um, <laughs> turning people into property much like it just like the whole even just the phrase like you couldn't make keep your husband from enacting on like you know things that are like perfectly normal in humanity like it's just uh it's just even just the phrasing of like certain things is like so it's so glaringly obvious how like capitalism has shaped those relationships and it's just wild to me how people like don't see it still or like refuse to see it like that yeah no but I'm not going to stress everyone out with my very unpopular opinions for the rest of the episode, I swear. <laughs> so what I want you to do for me, you gave us some great tips. Thank you. But <laughs> why don't you tell people where to find you and what you're working on right now? Like if there's a little sneak preview of a post you want to give to somebody, you can just, you can put it out there. You can tell us. I won't tell nobody until the episode drops. Okay, so right now I'm currently only on Instagram and TikTok. You can find me at anti-mononormative. And I, I don't know if I necessarily have anything that I'm going to be dropping um, in the next week or so. I think I'm very much a kind of person who posts, like, whenever I have an idea, I just, like, if I have time, I sit down and I make it and I post it. But I haven't really been operating on much of a schedule. But if there is any specific things that... Um, people want me to talk about more I recommend just going on my TikTok and commenting on any one of my videos because I do try to keep up with the comments and I respond to the comments in video form sometimes so um, yeah like I'll leave that up to the people listening like if you if you want to know like if I'll let you shape my future content really that's what my content is about it's about um, building community with other like-minded people and also I'm really interested in starting to build a community of people who might be interested in shaping being my research in graduate school. So if everything works out, I will be getting my PhD at a graduate program in New York City. So anyone listening who is 
involved, who wants to be involved in like the greater politics and activism and research behind um, mononormativity, let me know because we can make that work as a community. And it might even be um, something that goes on in New York City when that when that chapter of my life begins. So yeah, just let me know. Oh, of course. Okay, guys, you heard that? It's a call to action. A call to action. If you want to be a part of it, just reach out to Anti-Mononormative on TikTok or on Instagram. Once again, Nayeli, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And maybe I'll bring you back another time. Who knows? There might be more stuff for us to talk about. There's always more to talk about. So thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, I would love to thank Nayeli for agreeing to be on the podcast. You can find all of her links and the detailed show notes at madagamishpod.com. You can also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And I would especially appreciate if on Apple Podcasts, you could rate, review, and subscribe. You can check us out on Twitter or Instagram at monogamishpod. You can also find us on Facebook, monogamishpod. You can find us on YouTube. Just search monogamishpod. You're setting the trend, right? You can get us on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash monogamishpod. We are an 80 plus platform, so you have to actually type that in that way. You can also support us by buying merch from our merch shop. That's monogamishpod.threadless.com. And you can find me personally, just Jen, about boring Jen stuff, at Have You Met Jen on Twitter, Instagram. I have a Goodreads. I have a TikTok. I have, I have a bunch of stuff. Oh, right. Monogamishpod has a TikTok as well. Just search. Come on. You guessed it. Monogamishpod. And you can find us there. Tune in in the next two weeks where I have a different conversation with another lovely human. But lastly, I just want to say happy birthday to Nayeli. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on your first podcast with me. I, I love that. I love that energy. I love that moment. Uh, it's also Indigenous Peoples Month. So definitely want to shout out all of our other Indigenous listeners and polyamorous creators. I also want to talk about it being Trans Awareness Week. So shout out to all of the trans folk who are listening to this podcast at home. If you are a trans polyamorous person and you're interested in being on the podcast, you can always reach out to me and we can have a conversation about your story right here. I think that's all I have to say for today. So once again, I'm Jen and this is Monogamish Pod. You have a great evening.